Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to begin by reading Mary's Magnificant, and we will not be just exclusively there. This is just our springboard into the rest of the sermon. So Luke chapter 1, Mary's Magnificant, it begins in verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Lord, as we contemplate the incarnation, Lord, you're coming to us and taking on human flesh. We, we pray that we would not, we would glean insights from what this means for us and what you did and how you did it, but that it would not just be an exercise in um, thinking through something new or remembering something we already knew, but rather, Lord, we pray that as we look through these texts, that we're going to look at tonight, that we would be moved in worship, that our hearts would be stirred up within us about who you are as our God and our King, and that we would look to you in worship and praise and adoration with much thanksgiving because all that you have done for us, in us, to us, Lord, You have brought us to the place where we, instead of rebelling and living lives and antagonism against you, you have made us your friends, brought us near. We are kin now with your son, him being the firstborn among so many brethren. So, Lord, we pray that we would be having this mindset now. The distractions come. We pray against them. May we love you. Think more highly of you, Lord, once we walk out of here than we did when we came in. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Early on in the very beginnings of the history of humankind, one of the very first things we find God doing is issuing a command. 
It's the command that we might call and has been named the dominion mandate. Go therefore and take dominion of the world. Populate the world. Multiply upon the world. Everything is to be ours and we are to be fruitful and multiply. He says in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. This dominion mandate given to Adam was by design to show what Adam, in his innocence, had before him by way of that covenant that he had with God. It was the earth was to be his. He was to rule. He was to reign. He was to have dominion over the earth. And all of those who came from him would too have dominion over the earth. But when he fell into sin, it did not nullify that dominion mandate. But rather what happened is it was twisted and perverted It became something that um, it was not intended to be when it was given directly to Adam. And so from the very, very beginning of human history, what we find is a desire for someone to come and someone to take this dominion mandate, someone to come and be king over all and do it rightly. Follow God's pattern, follow God's established will. Adam was given this rule to follow. One rule, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he fell in that way. And since that fall, although mankind still is the greatest beings that exist on earth, we are not the most glorious or greatest beings in terms of our moral mandate or our moral activity. And so we long for something better and something more. And we see Adam rising up, or pardon me, Abraham rising up, and God giving to Abraham a renewed covenant in Genesis chapter 15. And there it says he's going to disperse throughout the whole world as if you could count the sands on the seashore. That's how many offspring, that's how many people, that's what's going to come through Father Abraham. And that spoke of a recapturing, a retaking hold of this dominion. All of these people are going to come from Abraham, a man who was the friend of God and followed after God, who sought his ways and sought holiness, and hope was, as it were, in humanity rekindled. And then as you go out through the Old Testament, you find that that lineage continues with not only Abraham, but his children. 
And then his children spread far and wide and there's much uppings and goings down and all kinds of problems and good things that come from the children of Abraham until we come to the end of the book of Judges. At the end of the book of Judges, even though Deuteronomy had been given and it was a mandate that rather than being a, a, a kingdom with a king on a throne, they were to be a theocracy with God on the throne, ruling and reigning through his word. The people rebelled and it said everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so rather than, allow, rather than allowing God to be their king, they instead, in the book of 1 Samuel, rebelled against that and said, we want a king like the rest of the nations around us. We're tired of not being like them. Now, God knew this was going to happen. The end of the book of Deuteronomy has many laws given for when the people would rebel against the theocracy and want a king, how that king should act and how that king should live. And we get to Saul, the very first king of Israel. And rather than following after those laws that were laid out for him in Deuteronomy, well, initially he seemed like a good call. He was strong, he was tall, he was apparently very charming and good-looking. He also had what seemed like at that time a vein of holiness with him whereby he wanted to do what's right and an attitude of humility. Remember when they called to make him king, he ran off and hid behind some cargo so that they wouldn't find him. But they did find him and they drug him in there and made him king and apparently over time it went to his head. It went to his head so much so that he took it upon himself to go out and to sacrifice before a battle when he was explicitly told, wait for Samuel to arrive and sacrifice and then go out and defeat the enemies. And you know the story. He didn't do that. He waited and waited and waited and got fed up and went and offered the sacrifice himself. And as soon as he did, guess who showed up? Prophet Samuel and said, this is not what you were supposed to do. Therefore, the kingdom is taken from you and given to another. Now, at that moment, Saul didn't drop dead, right? Just like when Adam sinned, he didn't immediately die. But God, in that moment, shifted his favor, shifted his attention, and took his focus off of King Saul, like he did with Adam, and looked to another, Another who would come and who would follow his statutes and his ways and his work. And this one we all know is King David. The smallest in his household. In fact, when Samuel comes to anoint the new king as God had commanded him, his dad Jesse didn't even think he was amongst the ones who'd be picked. So he didn't even call for him. Now, you'd think if Prophet Samuel was coming over, You'd have all of the family there washed and dressed in their best, no matter what. But to forget or to just intentionally leave one of your sons out in the field says a whole lot about what you think about that kid. <laughs> but that was the one who God had chosen. And remember, he said to Samuel, I don't look on the outward appearance. I look in the heart. 
There was something with David whereby God had done a work within David and had brought him to this place where he was truly a man after God's own heart. Well, maybe not quite a man at that point, a young little whippersnapper. (laughs) But this little youngster, he not only went out and defeated Goliath, He not only was anointed king of Israel, he not only fought many, 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 many battles. But there's a beautiful passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has been king for a long time at this point. He'd had many failures. And some successes. He'd been struck through almost by Saul's spear. Remember that instance? He had to run away and hide from King Saul. In the most inglorious of circumstances. Hiding in a cave that was basically a bathroom. Saul had to go in there and relieve himself. And remember, David snuck up and cut that little corner of his robe off so that when Saul went back outside, he could demonstrate that he wasn't trying to usurp Saul's authority or kill him. Remember that instance? Not the most glorious of situations to be in. He went and pretended to be mad there at the gates of of Gath as he's just calling at the gate and the king of the Philistines looks and says, this is David? (laughs) This is not the king I anticipated or expected and not David's most glorious moment either. He committed other sins that we know that we would look at and we would say, oh, the kingdom must be taken from him with the things he did with Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba at that particular point. But God didn't. God didn't take his crown away from him. God did not take the anointing away from him. In fact, when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find this amazing passage where we see that the very beginning covenant that was given to Adam to take dominion and be the godly king over all of creation is almost, as it were, reinstituted and re-given to David. Now, this particular command or covenant, as we're about to read here, didn't imply that David himself would be the one who would go forward and take this kind of dominion to fulfill the covenant promises that had been made from the very beginning of time, but that one who would come from him would be the one who would accomplish all of that that humanity has longed for and hoped for since the earliest of days. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Nathan at night. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling 
In all the places where I have moved with all of the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. I will give you rest or Sabbath from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Now if you read the rest of that chapter, you find David's response to this glorious covenant that God makes with David. And he rejoices and he cries and he weeps with joy. One thing I want you to notice and have pointed out here is that notice this covenant. There is no requirements made of David. Nothing. He he doesn't expect anything more from David at this point in terms of the covenant. It is all a Godward covenant to David. It's God saying, I have done this for you. I have done this for you. I will continue to do this for you. And on top of that, I will make of you a great house. I will establish the kingdom through your name that will never, ever, ever, ever be destroyed. Your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And there's this near and far fulfillment, right? Because we see him then referring to who we don't know if we're reading through it, but we do know because we're looking from the past, Solomon is going to raise up and there's going to be much good in him, but also much iniquity in him. And he is disciplined by the Lord, but the kingdom isn't divided until after his death. 
But even when that kingdom's divided, much like Abraham was promised a line and a lineage, a seed through whom all of the promises would come, David is given a similar promise here at the end, that his line would be established. His lineage would be a kingly lineage that would never fall and absolutely be intact forever. And all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we find these longings for this kingdom to come. We're all familiar with Psalm 110, or at least we should be. If you've read your New Testament at all, you've come across it because it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But it reads like this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now remember, this is David writing this. So David is the Lord, but he's saying to somebody who's greater than him. Jesus brings up this very same argument in the Gospel of John when his critics are attacking him. He says, how can David say such things unless the one who is going to come from him is greater than he actually is himself? But let me continue with the psalm. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth, it will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way and therefore will lift up his head. Or Psalm 89. Psalm 89 has a lengthy section looking to David as being the covenant king of the nation of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted the chosen one from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, and I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy won't outwit him. The wicked will not humble him. I will crush his foes before him who strike those down who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him in the name, pardon me, in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love 
or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter my words that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my own holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun is before me like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And he goes on from there. But I read that lengthy passage to point out the clear words of covenant faithfulness that God gives to the nation of Israel and specifically to David as he calls the lineage of those who are going to come after David his established offspring, his established kingdom, his established work. This Davidic covenant doesn't just appear out of nowhere in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's something that the nation, once they have David there and the covenant has been given, they look back to and see the promises being from the very beginning and they look forward to a time where all things shall be consummated in this king to come. They're looking forward for a king to re-usher in paradise. They're not just looking for a really strong dude to give them a big plot of land. They're looking, longing for somebody more than just this king like David. They're looking for someone greater than him who's going to bring in the fulfillment of all the covenants that have come before and those covenants will be fulfilled in this one individual after who will be a king like David and sit on his throne. And we can go on and on and on and on and on throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament and find these longings. I say this, and I bring all of this up here in this context because let's be honest, as Americans, we're like 200 and not even 50 years old yet. We're like a little pipsqueak of a nation, honestly, throughout the history of the world. We're a little blip on the radar of history. These people we're looking at right here have already been in existence for more than a thousand years. Uh, More than a thousand years exist between the time of Abraham here and David. Well, specifically all the way back to Adam. But we're looking at these people who've existed for a long period of time. And God has been working and God has been working and God has been working and God has been working. And he finally gives this covenant to Abraham. Then he gives reissues a covenant to Moses. Then he gives a covenant to his people here in King David. And we look at this covenant and we see that all of this has a history going all the way back to the very beginning of the world and we suddenly begin to think and realize wow this nation is caught up in all of God's history in all that God's doing in all of God's work and it should be humbling to us it should be very humbling to us when we look and see that this great work that God is doing over the span of history has included all of these people up to this point for thousands of years. And now as we look back on these events, we find ourselves caught up in this massive work of God that he's doing all throughout the history of the world, all via his covenantal promises. 
all via his covenantal truths. Now, when you close the end of your Old Testament here, and you open the pages of your New Testament here, for us it just takes one second of a flip of the page. There's more than 400 years that take place in between these two books. Again, that's longer than we've even been a nation. Not to mention everything that's come before. And everything that's come before has millions upon millions of people who have been looking to God and his promises, have been trusting in him to fulfill the work he said he was going to do and that he had commanded Adam to do. Adam failed and then God promised he would do over and over and over and over. I don't understand those kind of longings. I can't. This week, I've been trying to wrap my mind around what in the world would my mindset, what could my mindset have possibly have been to have lived in the days in between the Testaments? Having had all of these promises given to me, having all of these covenants issued, having David be the king, seeing his line continue through, the exile happen, the reestablishment of the nation, the looking to the, all of this, what in the world would my mindset be? And I am just absolutely uncertain. I'm overwhelmed with the thoughts of it. And so I'm forced to go to some of these people in the New Testament who look upon the face of Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, we look at Mary, which is why we went and read the Magnificent here in the beginning. If you're still in Luke, good. Look at chapter 1 and look in verse 26 because this is something that's very famous and something that we're all familiar with. But as we read through it, let's point out just a couple of things as we go. So Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. The sixth month if you have read the story of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin's pregnancy of John the Baptist. Okay, that's her sixth month. Now the angel Gabriel has been sent to Mary. To a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That is no incidental throwing in there of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, obviously, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What? What? If I go out to eat 
and I order, which I did just the other day, and I had to sit there and wait for a little bit too long, I begin to think they forgot about me in there. (laughs) This has been hundreds and thousands of years. And this, all of this anticipation, all of this hope, all of this longing and looking, all of these silent years by God where he doesn't speak through a prophet, and then all of a sudden this angel shows up, God's timing is not our timing. God is in no hurry. He has a plan and a purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. And although we look at the things that happen in our lives and we think, oh, this is so important, God, why don't you jump in here right now and do this? Which I think regularly. I have to bring myself back and be reminded of these truths here. God has an eternal plan that he's working out in history as it progresses. And he is not going to allow it to get away from him. He's getting everything accomplished exactly how he wants to accomplish it, when he wants to accomplish it in history. This is the very exact person. Mary is beloved and blessed by God because she was preordained from the foundation of the world to be the one who would bear Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's not an accident. They weren't just up there kind of twiddling their thumbs going, okay, looks good, go now, kind of thing. This is all orchestrated according to God's sovereign plan and purpose. The reason why God could say all the way back in the very beginning in Genesis 15 to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation that no one can number is because he knew exactly what he was going to do when he brought Jesus Christ into the world through the Virgin Mary. And that this individual would be the King of kings and Lord of lords. That Jesus Christ would be called the Son of the Most High God and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, it it shouldn't be a surprise to us that people misunderstood who Jesus was. Right? I mean, I mean, we see enough times that the apostles misunderstood what Jesus was doing that we probably can safely assume that it was a regular occurrence of them to be like, okay, kingdom now? Okay, kingdom now? And we see it three or four times and you know it was more than three or four times that that situation came up. And so they were constantly looking and longing for Jesus to either raise up an army or politically get himself in a position where he could put the right amount of pressure on not only the leadership of Israel, but on the empire of Rome as well so that he could take over and be king there in Israel. And I think Mary had similar thoughts. And I don't fault her for it. I think her magnificent is exactly what we would expect from somebody who didn't have all of the understanding, who was thinking in a way that was very Israel-centric. And why wouldn't you think very Israel-centric at this particular point, right? I mean, he's David, king of Israel, right? This This king who's going to raise up is going to be from the lineage of Israel, 
So why not think like this? Look what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I think there's an understanding there where she does believe that in some sense, the child that's going to come from her is going to save her. And I don't think it's just politically. That she's definitely thinking along spiritual lines here. But it doesn't stay there because look what it says down towards the end. Let's start in verse 52 or 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts and in their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate. Those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary rejoices in the Messiah who's coming. And let's give her credit. She, amongst almost everybody else at that time, is on the right track. She's thinking the best thoughts she possibly can at this particular point. But there's some revelation that doesn't take place at this particular point. Remember, she's confused about lots of things Jesus does. At one point, she thinks he's crazy. And with his brothers and sisters, Ghost tries to pull him out of a teaching session. Remember? But she stores up these things in her heart, the Bible tells us. She thinks on these things. And there, even at the cross of Christ, she weeps over Jesus dying there on the cross. And Jesus has to give John charge over her as he dies. But he rises from the dead. And once he does that, there is a renewed understanding for who Jesus is and why he came. In fact, This is interesting to me, and you might wonder why at this point am I taking this tact on a Christmas sermon, an Advent sermon. Seems odd to be talking about this. Well, the reason is, is because the very first sermon ever preached by Peter as a Christian sermon, right? Distinctly Christian meaning it is following in the vein of Christ's teachings after his death. He says these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced that my flesh would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, 
He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is still with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath or a covenant to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. He did not see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit has poured out on yourselves what you are seeing and hearing this day. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, the birth of Jesus is not just, you know, we, we don't want to, that's the best way to say this. We, we have little cute, kitschy little phrases. Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. If, if that's as far as we go, though, that is woefully inadequate to describe Jesus and what he did. Jesus was the very promised king that has fulfilled all of the covenants that God had given to his people all throughout time in history. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is him being enthroned on that Davidic throne that was prophesied of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus never went and sat on a physical throne there on Mount Zion. He never, I don't know if he ever will, in fact. He doesn't really need to. Some people will think that has to happen someday in some eschatological systems. But the truth of the matter is, he has been enthroned by his resurrection. And the proof is, he is king of kings and lord of lords, is that resurrection. Now we ask, well, what does that have to do with us here and now? He's the Israelite king. He's the Jewish king. Well, that was not to be an end in and of itself. God had, again, much bigger, bigger, bigger plans than just Jesus being the king of Israel. Remember, one time you Gentiles, you who are Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth or the nation of Israel. You, remember, are strangers to the covenants and the promises of God. Remember, you have no hope and you are without God in this world. But now, Christ Jesus, and in him, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He made us one. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that exists in the flesh. 
And he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new people in the place of two. So making peace and reconciling us to God through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. Beloved, he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to you who were near. So that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You are fellow citizens and saints. Members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being that chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, beloved, Jesus is just as much our King as he is the king of the Jew. It might have been nailed over his head as he died, king of the Jews, but there was something so much greater, so much bigger, so much grander taking place in that Jesus was reconciling the whole world to himself. And he has become the king of all beings that exist. So that like we already talked about in Philippians chapter 1, at one time in one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to, that Jesus Christ is Lord, is king to the glory of God the Father. You see, he took us who were Gentiles by nature, who were Gentiles by the flesh, and he said, I am not just going to be content to save these people, but I want for myself people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And beloved, the good, glorious news is that's exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 5. King Jesus is king of the world. His kingdom is a world that has no bounds because he has torn down the wall of hostility that stood for everybody and anybody who comes to him by faith can become a part of King Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world, which is why we can be citizens here and now just as much as everyone else could have been back in their day. Anybody who's in Kenya today or in Indonesia today or in South America anywhere today, wherever the kingdom of God exists, we are co-heirs and co-citizens with them because our king is King Jesus. And our kingdom is greater than any kingdoms of this world. Mary was right. Mary was absolutely right when she prayed here in her Magnificant. And my soul magnifies in the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The good glorious news is that we who live so far from that time and that place can pray that same prayer and it be absolutely applicable to us today because King Jesus is King of all. King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus.
to live under the law, to live perfectly under the law, to live in that time and in that place where he exactly needed to according to your definite plan and purpose so that we might now stand as recipients of that grace and salvation that we have through your son tearing down that wall of hostility that stood whereby we could not come to you. We couldn't come nationally as Gentiles We couldn't come as humans because of our sin. But Lord, in both of those areas, you have taken down what separated us from you. Making us members of your covenant community, calling us the new Israel in you. And also, Lord, giving us the freedom that comes through having sins forgiven. Lord, I praise you that you have had this plan and purpose throughout all time. That You knew exactly what you were doing. We can stand, therefore, with great hope and great confidence that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, Lord. And so as we celebrate this time of Christmas and remembering your incarnation, Lord, we look not just to a baby in a manger, but to a king on a throne in heaven, crowned in glory, redeeming his people for all time. We praise you and you worship you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.